Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager. In November 2016, Blackfeet tribal member and writer Bill Wetzel convened Protecting the Sacred, a panel on indigenous environmental issues at Revolutionary Grounds Books and Coffee. The panel was a discussion on indigenous environmental issues. It focused primarily on water and developments at Standing Rock regarding the Dakota Access Pipeline. The panelists include moderator John Bird of the Blackfeet, indigenous scholar and writer Tom Holm of the Cherokee, the Native Nations Institute's Veronica Hirsch of the Chiricahua Apache, and clean air quality specialist and poet Ruben Kuchbach of the Tohono O'odham. The event began with remarks by Bill Wetzel, followed by each of the panelists. Thank you everybody for coming. Thank you to Revolutionary Grounds for opening up specifically for us for this night. This panel is called Protecting the Sacred, a panel on indigenous environmental issues. My name is Bill Wetzel. I'm a member of the Blackfeet tribe and I am a local writer. Uh, some of you may know me from, uh, I, I run the uh, Shukshan Indigenous Reading Series and the Good Oak Bar Reading Series in town. I'm going to talk today uh, uh, about one drop. I want to talk about one drop of water, but first I'll tell you a story. Nearly 80 years ago, in a little reservation house that no longer stands today, a young man would wake up every morning in the dead of winter to go to work on a state highway road crew. Not long before this, during the Great Depression, his own father would work one day a week for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. His father would get paid one patch of tobacco, some potatoes and rice, and one dollar for his efforts to feed his family. So like his father, this young man knew what it was like to live and support a family through hard times. He would wake every morning and walk to a neighbor's house and haul water from the well back home for the use of his young wife and seven children. He would then walk four miles of dirt road to a highway where he would hitchhike six miles to work, then back later on that evening. As the highway project continued, his trip eventually grew to over 30 miles one way and back. This was often done in weather as cold as 40 below zero. This man was my grandfather, Walter Blackie Wetzel. From that point, he saved his money and he got a car. Soon he was elected to the Blackfeet Tribal Council. A few years later, he was made tribal chairman. And eventually, he was elected president of the National Congress of American Indians, where he became personal friends with John F. Kennedy and his brothers. And I tell you that story for three reasons. The first is that this was a dark time in our nation's history. We were devastated by the Great Depression, then World War II. We endured national trauma including the shameful internment of our fellow citizens, Japanese Americans. In many ways, we are going through a similarly dark time, 15 years of war in the Middle East, and an economy which hasn't fully recovered from the Great Recession of 2008. And we face a threat from an authoritarian president-elect who openly spews hate and bigotry against Muslims, people of color, and many of our most vulnerable citizens. However, there is a reason number two, and that reason is we persevered. Just like my grandfather who worked hard and survived through the tough times, our country did too. Now at the end of World War II, the United States had 6% of the world's population and 50% of the world's wealth. We were a superpower almost without historical precedent. 
and we spent decades building a robust middle class. We are a strong people, and like our ancestors, we will get through this darkness as well. And third, and this brings me back to water, every single day my grandfather started his day hauling water for his family. Water is essential to life. It is the base for everything. So it is no wonder why our brothers and sisters at Standing Rock, North Dakota, are fighting so hard to protect their water source in what should be considered one of the greatest civil rights issues of our time, if not the greatest. But there is something about water. Water is powerful. It is a force of nature. Think back to that one single drop. It reminds me of the beginning of my friend, the great Diné poet Sherwin Bitsui's book, Flood Song. The book starts with one word, twa, descending on the page, downward, twa, twa, twa. Twa is the Diné word for water, and on the page it looks like droplets. Those droplets became a torrential storm, then they became a flood. Together they are a force of nature that cannot be stopped until it runs its course. And after the flood, as my friend writes, there is a rebirth. The flood comes and cleanses the earth and it grows back beautiful again. Now I am just one man, toi. These panelists are each just one person, toi, 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 toi. You are all individuals, toi, toi, toi. But together, just like the water, when we all get together, we are a force of nature. We are a force of change that nothing or nobody can stop. And after we are done fighting our fights and changing the world, preserving Oak Flats, shutting down the fracking of Chief Mountain, and now stopping the Dakota Pipeline, then there will be a rebirth and the world will be more beautiful than ever. Thank you, everybody. I'd like to introduce our moderator and panelists. You already met John Bird. John Bird is um, Scott B. Picani which means he's a Blackfeet from Montana. He has a Master's of Education in Mental Health Counseling and has studied extensively with tribal elders. He has been doing community and organizational development work for the past 30 years with Indian tribes and organizations, state and federal government projects, nonprofit agencies, and major Fortune 500 corporations. And we will not hold the last one against him. <laughs> Veronica Hirsch is Cherokawa Apache. She serves as a digital resources coordinator at the Native Nations Institute within the Udall Center for Studies and Public Policy at the University of Arizona. Her work is focused on rebuilding Native Nations, distance learning courses, and the ongoing development of the multimedia iGov.database.com. Veronica possesses a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of California, Davis in Environmental and Resource Sciences, a Master of Arts degree in American Indian Studies from the University of Arizona, and a professional science master's degree in natural resources and environmental science from the University of Idaho. She's smart. So. Overeducated. Ruben Tukbach is a Tahana Adam Nation member who has been recently published in Indigenous Stewards, a publication of the Southwest Health Sciences Center College of Pharmacy. Ruben is part of the reading crew and is currently working on his first book. He is a clean air quality specialist for the Tahana Autumn Nation. Tom Holm is an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation from Oklahoma. He has been involved in American Indian education and Native Veterans Affairs for over 40 years. He was a member of the Cherokee Nation Sequoia Commission. Holm served with Bravo Company 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines, 3rd Marine Division in Vietnam. 
He holds a PhD from the University of Oklahoma and was a professor of American Indian Studies and Political Science at the University of Arizona from 1980 to 2009. He's the author of the nonfiction book Strong Hearts, Wounded Souls, which was a finalist for the Victor Turner Prize and The Great Confusion in Indian Affairs, as well as the novels The Osage Rose and Anadarko. Okay, I'm just going to ask each of the panel members to make kind of an opening statement about some of the things that they see as issues and things that they want to talk about tonight and 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 maybe to further introduce themselves you know just a short opening statement then we'll come back and continue with the dialogue let's go ahead and get started let's start with our elder <laughs> tom holmes all right <laughs> Uh, yeah, my name is Tom Holm. I'm uh, originally from Oklahoma. Uh, I'm enrolled with the Cherokee Nation, but my grandpa was uh, was uh, uh, Creek, and uh, from uh, the uh, uh, New Tulsa, Talwa. And uh, uh, you know, background. Grew up in Oklahoma. Joined the Marine Corps in 1966. That was 50 years ago. I slept and my head was outside and it turned kind of frosty overnight. <laughs> I uh, taught at the University of Arizona for uh, nearly 30 years. The guy who recruited me was uh, Vine Deloria Jr. I think that a lot of you have heard of him. And uh, another guy that I worked with uh, extensively was Scott Mamaday and Robert K. Thomas. I don't know if you read this. I was, I was reading in the paper the other day, there's a letter to the editor saying that the folks up in Standing Rock don't have a leg to stand on because an anthropologist has said that that site up there is, uh, is not uh, sacred. I was wondering who the anthropologist was. Uh, I've known a lot of them and disliked most of them. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to share you one thing is that a number of the elders at the stomp grounds back home uh, in prayers and this kind of goes back to what John was saying as well. They end prayers with, uh, usually with, uh, with uh, uh, kind of a, a sentence that says, Unole ama ajilan elohi gadohi. What that means is, is, is that they list or they mention four sacred elements. The first, unole, was the air the wind. Second was ama, water. The third was ajila, the fire. And the fourth was elohi gadohi, it means the earth right here on the ground. And uh, in those old, the old folks, there, there are seven layers of, of heaven. And Elohi Gadohi is right here, right there. So, but all of these elements, all of these things that we learn and understand and know are all connected. They're all sacred and they're all connected. And that's, they're interwoven so as to be inseparable. So when we, so when we think of that water is sacred, we also have to acknowledge that Elohi Gadohi is sacred as well. 
I'll sit down since I don't have a microphone. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> I tried. That was that was an old joke back home. It's never give an Indian man a, a microphone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> are you going to be here for a long, long time? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was. Uh, we were kind of joking around up here in front, and uh, I drove down here tonight and uh, and found out that I can no longer parallel park. <laughs> so I found it uh, <laughs> by the street. But I'm so glad to see you tonight. I'm so honored to be here. And I thank you very, very much for uh, listening to me for these few minutes. And we can go on from there. You are listening to remarks made in November 2016 at Protecting the Sacred, a panel on indigenous environmental issues on 30 Minutes, 91.3. KXCI Tucson. Veronica. Thank you. Uh, my name is Veronica Hirsch. I'm Chaopananda. For my mother, I'm Chiricahua Apache. And uh, before I, I say really anything, I just want to pay respects to the traditional keepers of these homelands, the Thanatham, Thanatham Nation. We are on uh, Thanatham Jowith, uh, Thanatham homelands. And so all of us, myself included, who are non Otham, um, we live and work and thrive here uh, really as a, a blessing, realizing that the original caretakers and the ongoing caretakers of these lands um, have taken such good care of it. So it permits us all to really uh, be able to enjoy that. So I want to acknowledge, uh, again, Thanatham um, citizens. A little bit of, I guess, background or by way of introduction that I want to share about is, um, as Bill you know, listed, a little bit of my educational background. Uh, that doesn't define me. What defines me is who I am, um, and who I am is who my mothers are. So my mother, uh, Linda Franco Hirsch, and her mother, my maternal grandmother, Genevieve Archuleta Franco, they both were instrumental in raising me. And so for, like a lot of other tribal nations, uh, we are who our mothers are. And so I grew up in a household that, that was present, part of my everyday reality. And my maternal grandmother, she raised six children. She raised all of her grandchildren. There are about 32 of us. And then she raised two of her great-grandchildren. And out of all of her grandchildren, she and I had an especially close bond. And so I actually credit everything that I do, everything I care about, everything about which I'm passionate, specifically water, as we call it, through, as some other people, uh, Navajo, our cousins, Po, Shuda, and Thanatan language. Um, my relationship to water is really based upon my relationship to my grandmother. And I have a very vivid memory, and I was inspired by um, Bill's story of his grandfather. Thank you for sharing that. My vivid memory of my maternal grandmother, Genevieve, is that every morning she would fill two small uh, yellow plastic dish pans. It's that old school yellow, goldenrod, I think they call it. And so one dish pan would be full of hot water that she would boil on her stove, and the other dish pan would just be whatever, tap water temperature. And that was for the day's dishes, for the washing of dishes. And at the end of every day of washing those dishes, we would take that water, and now in environmental science, we call it gray water. We have all these fancy names for things that <laughs> dishes people have done for forever. You know, yeah. rain water, rainwater harvesting, uh, diversions, swales, berms, all these things. These are things that, you know, for many of us who maybe were raised by grandparents or lived in, and, uh, in communities where this was just an everyday reality of hauling water or working the land, not just your garden, but you know, for subsistence activities. These are things that are, are commonplace, and now we have this other type of verbiage and terminology to apply to it. 
Well, my grandmother would take that gray water and we would go out into the garden and we would offer prayers and we would water her plants. But one thing I, I vividly remember one day in particular, I was eight years old and she was washing dishes. She would always talk to me about our family and where we're from and what we ate, who did what, who married who, who had a kid for who, under whatever circumstances. And um, I remember she told me, and she would say this repeatedly, she would say, never waste what is precious. And she was talking about food. And one thing that I think it's really important in any kind of conversation we have about water, um, and, and this is also, I'm guilty of this, I think part of my exposure to this this body of knowledge called environmental science, water resources management, uh, hydrobiology, these are all my passions. As I continually hear this word applied to water, to food, to our relative, I hear this word resource. And I think it's really important that we reframe how we speak about water and the reverence that we give water, that we acknowledge water's innate power and our own um, pitifulness, comparatively. Because when we say a resource, that immediately implies an extractive quality. That immediately implies something that is to be used or to be consumed. When in fact, we remind ourselves what water truly is. That it's a relative. That she has her own spirit, her own value, her own worth. A part of what she provides to any of us, all of us. And I think when we remind ourselves of that, that's when we can have a conversation that is really appropriately grounded. When we move away from some of the more lurid details that we know that are happening, not only at Standing Rock, also happening at Chichil at Oak Flat, happening more recently, just as earlier this morning, or might have been yesterday, if we're, depending on what side of the globe you're on, traditional chieftain in the Niger Delta bringing a lawsuit against major oil companies. It's been two decades in the making. You know, these things are happening all over the place. But again, I think when we reframe those conversations and we remind ourselves what water is, what food is, that we are talking about a relative, that can put us in the frame of mind to have a discussion that hopefully is not so polarizing, but instead says, let's acknowledge the basis of all that is, of everything that we regard as being alive that this is a relative. And so I just wanted to share that with you. And that concept is not something that comes from me. That is a concept that was generously shared with me by one of my sisters, my Tanzanian sister. Her name is Kokugonsa. Her name translates as one who's beloved and one who loves. She's from the Haya tribe in Tanzania. And she talks about her own experience with water, of what's been called Lake Victoria, but in her language, Nyansa, the mother, the mother water. And she kindly shared what I just expressed to you, really putting in that frame of mind that we are talking about water that is a relative and not a resource to be debated or to be fought over, to be litigated over, but rather to be revered. Thank you. Okay, Ruben. Good evening. So I, I come from Sales, Arizona, and basically what these guys were saying, the same thing. Um, Every year um, we go to ceremony, I come from the desert, so we pray for rain, pray for water every year. And tribes around the world, not just native in, in America, but they do the same thing in different deserts around the world. So for us, water has always been a precious commodity. And, and here in the desert, especially where it's scarce, you know, um, the agriculture that they do here in Arizona, 
and the Phoenix being five million and the carrying capacity in terms of water for our Phoenix is, I don't know how long it's gonna be able to sustain that. But for me, um, this movement that, that's going on in North Dakota, I had to kind of look at it from a lot of ways because I went through the whole, like, uh, I went to go see different movements as they were, they were happening, the um, Idle No More and, and um, Oak Flats and things like that. And it seemed, it seemed that they kind of got co-op by different organizations that it kind of took away from what that actually was. But this is different. This is different for me and, and for for young minds to, to kind of push their elders in this direction. Because I know for, for us in Tone Autumn, there was a lot of, uh, the younger people were, were pushing the council to go support them. Go out there and support them, go support them. And finally, it, it happened, it, it, it happened. But it, 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 took a, it, it took a while. But our, our vice chairman went out there, he did a thing for, uh, he delivered a speech. I heard it was a, it was a really good, um, my aunt went. And for right now, you know, I'm, in a, I'm not in a position where I could just up and go. You know, I have a, I have a career. I take care of our air quality on the TO Nation, and, um, and so we're doing we're doing projects, and, and I want to see them out. But I just I'm not in a position where I can just uproot and just go out and, and do that. So I commend the, those people that, that are out there doing that. But like I said, it's more of the the awakening of these young these young people want this to happen, and it's pushing for. For, for years, we, we had to deal with these dinosaurs that didn't want to do nothing. I mean, in, in Native America, in Native America, to get through that red tape to, to do something, you had to go through a, a, a plethora of channels. And, and by the time you even got halfway there, it might fizzle out in, in, in your own tribe. So what they're doing now to get tribes to support them, to do what they're doing right now, that's phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's bringing, this whole thing is, it's changed, it's changed in Native America. And so I really commend these young people that are, that are out there doing that. I got my degree in uh, sustainability and economics. And like what you were saying, when I, when I was doing that, there was a lot of terms in there that, you know, I, growing up, um, my grandfather, it was weird because he, he had a career in, in cropping. So, you know, he knew how to monocrop. My grandma taught me how to, how to, how to, how to grow like, like the autumn did. My grandma showed me how to plant like we did, this cocktail kind of garden, and, and um, that's how we planted um, as autumn for a household, for a community, not for a, a region or for a state, but just for a community. And that's how we did it. So it was, it was weird learning that from my grandma, not from my, my grandfather. My grandfather, he did, he did his thing, um, and he did well. He, he did well in, in, that, in that environment. So for me, um, this is a lot. Uh, to come here and, and to even attempt to try to um, kind of uh, represent what they're doing in North Dakota, I can't. But I just, I just, just kind of like uh, express my admiration for what they're doing because like I said, it's just a huge, huge step in, in uh, Native America. We haven't seen, I haven't seen this in my lifetime. Not like this where tribes come together because in other in other things that I've been involved with, you, I would see um, some tribe set trip, and I don't know if you know what that means. Um, kind of be about them, and um, this isn't. This is about the water, and all these tribes are coming together for this water. So for for me, um, we, I, I'm seeing I'm seeing something that I haven't, and I'm, and I'm kind of want to build for a lot of the poetry that I write talks to the generations to younger generations about moving forward, about solutions, 
about today, present, moving, moving on. It's not about back then and what happened back then. We know. We know what happened back then, but we're trying to move forward. We need to move forward. We need to evolve. So that's our that's our panel for tonight. And does anybody have any like specific question about water or any of the other kinds of environmental issues that are going on? Something that you'd like them to talk to? I've just got, I got one question, um, and it's about Oak Flat. Uh, they're running out of water. They have no water there anymore. And I want to know about the communities around there. I heard there's a rumor that the community of Queen Valley is without water. Mm. Is this true? Does anybody know? Mm. Uh, so regarding Oak Flat, in terms of the specific community, whether or not it's without water, I, I couldn't say specifically about Queen Valley. It's true, and you can look at various social media sites. There are some that are very reputable, two of which I can share with you, and so on your leisure time, you can look them up. You can look up Apache Stronghold, and you can also look up Save Oak Flat as well. Just day before yesterday, there were about 23 pictures uploaded that show the effects of draining the area. And this is in preparation for the mine that is imminent. In terms of what effect does draining of an area, let's say, have upon surrounding communities, the fact is any type of surface water that you have that's visible, it is hydrologically connected to any subsurface body. So what that means is if I drain stuff, let's say from a lake, anything that is within the soil profile, if you can think of a soil profile as like a layer cake, a bunch of different layers. Some of those layers are going to become, are going to be more, um, what would I call it? The term is hydraulic conductivity. So for instance, hydraulic conductivity, um, if you have gravel and let's say you pour water through it, water is going to flow faster through gravel than it is through sand. And so hydraulic conductivity has to do with the pore size uh, between grains of, of matter, whether that's gravel or if it's something like sand or clay or loam. And so anytime you have a situation where you, again, picture a, a soil profile like a layer cake that's made up of all these different levels, of differing levels of hydraulic conductivity. When you take water from a, a surface body that you can see, mm -hmm. and let's say you, you drop a pump down, if it hits an area that has greater hydraulic conductivity, it has greater pore spaces between, let's say, gravel versus something like clay or sand, it's going to suck that water out much more quickly. And that is going to impact water that is, let's say, in an aquifer. And, and I think there's some misnomers about when people do groundwater pumping, or there, I've even heard in the news, oh, well, we can, uh, groundwater pumping maybe isn't something that should be of such high concern because we can do some artificial recharge, we, you know, we can try, kind of inject water back into the soil profile. Um, and what effect that will or will not have uh, on overall water availability. All of these things, all these manipulations that we're talking about, they will exact consequences, some of which maybe are unintentional and many of which maybe are irreversible. So when you're looking at, you know, when you're hearing this kind of dialogue of, oh, well, there's this water, there's more water underground. You know, water, wherever it happens to be located, it is connected. So when you hear these things, you know, even in terms of, let's say, explanations, um, as we heard previously about how all things are connected, this isn't just poetic language. This is also a statement of scientific fact, how you have <laughs> surface water and subsurface water resources that are in fact connected to each other. So you, you do an impact on one, 
it is more likely than not going to have any impact on, that, on another place. The other thing I want to say very quickly about that is even in some of the best modeling, um, and I've worked with a couple models. Um, I'm not a modeler, so I mean, I, I, I admit that up front in my own areas of, of ignorance. But a couple of models that I worked with, even some of those computer models that can try to, let's say, predict the impact of pumping, or let's say even the, the spread, let's say, of a contaminant plume. Those are guesses at best, best. at best. And part of that has to do with this hydraulic conductivity concept that I mentioned, that water will flow more quickly, let's say, through gravel than it will through sand or clay. And depending on where, let's say, certain soil types are that are more gravelly or clay or sandy, that is going to impact how quickly that water can, let's say, be sucked out through a groundwater pump or how quickly a contaminant can spread. So in this instance of Queen Valley, let's say pumping in one area, seemingly it's having an effect that no one anticipated way over here. Likely, my guess would be, the reason that there's some kind of unanticipated effect over here, we didn't think it was going to affect this way far out, you know, our best models didn't predict that. It's likely because there's some kind of preferential flow path. The preferential flow path, again, gets back to the idea of hydraulic conductivity. There's some flow path where something is able to be sucked out more quickly, let's say, again, through that gravel versus that clay or that sand. And that's true, like I said, whether you are pumping groundwater or whether you are seeing a contaminant spread. So the best models, are again, I'm not saying that they are completely without merit, but I think we need to acknowledge up front, again, our own limitations as human beings. I think it gets back to what has already been expressed that um, when we approach these conversations, when we have these difficult conversations about, and I'm gonna use you know words that sometimes feel uncomfortable, economic development, whatever that looks like, we still have to put it in the context that we are but flawed human beings with our own human frailties, um, our own agendas, our own preconceived notions, and to somehow pretend that we are not all impacted in some form or fashion by that, uh, by upbringing, by exposure to whatever body of knowledge, whether it's in a formalized institutional setting or through directly working the land, whether you're native or non-native, everything that we do is an approximation. And, but regardless of that fact, there are consequences that we have to deal with, whatever those consequences may be. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to remarks made in November 2016 at Protecting the Sacred, a panel on indigenous environmental issues. Speakers included panel convener Bill Wetzel, moderator John Bird of the Blackfeet, indigenous scholar and writer Tom Holm of the Chiricahua, the Native Nations Institute's Veronica Hirsch of the Chiricahua Apache, and clean air quality specialist and poet Ruben Cookbach of the Tohono O'odham. This has been part one of a multi-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson.